Today on the Women Mind the Water podcast, I'm speaking with Kathy Sackis. Kathy is a multifaceted, talented storyteller. She's worked as a natural history interpreter, a documentary filmmaker, an author, and much more. Kathy is driven by a passion for and a commitment to exploring and sharing the wonders of the ocean. The Women Mind the Water Artivist series engages artists in conversation about their work and explores her connection with the ocean. Through their stories, Women Mind the Water hopes to inspire and encourage action to protect the ocean and her creatures. I am pleased today to welcome Kathy Sackis to the Women Mind the Water podcast series. Of all the guests I have spoken with, and I have spoken to many accomplished women, Kathy's achievements shine brightly. Among them are an Emmy for her five-part documentary, Coastal Naturalist, and her license to navigate a one-person submersible. If those weren't cool enough, she's the only person I know who spent nine days living underwater. Kathy said of the experience, it's the closest I've ever come to being a fish. <laughs> Welcome, Kathy. I am Thank so you. I am so pleased you accepted my invitation to be on the Women Mind the Water podcast. You've done so many amazing things, and I'm sure I could talk to you for days and not really scratch the surface of your adventures. Kathy, my first question is directed to your work as an interpretive naturalist. I think it would be helpful if you describe for the audience what an interpretive naturalist does. Uh, well, Pam, thank you, first of all, for inviting me to be a part of, of this, uh, your podcast. Uh, you've had quite a, quite a long list of very um, fabulous women, so I'm, I'm proud to be a part of this august group. Thank uh, you. <laughs> uh, uh, I am what is referred to or what, um, what is termed a professional interpretive naturalist. And so uh, a naturalist, just to be clear, is anybody who observes nature. That's the very simple term. A professional interpretive naturalist has the, the background, the experience and the degrees, uh, some would say, to go with the, with the professionalism. So my job uh, what I, and what I enjoy doing and, and still doing is taking people into wilderness areas and helping them make the connections. So not only uh, can I identify uh, most of the of the beasts and the and the uh, plant life, the flora and the fauna, uh, fauna in in a specific area. Well, let's explore your documentary work. How did the idea for the documentary series Coastal Naturalists come to you, and how did you come to be the writer, host, and narrator for the show? So I. Um, I realized that I wanted to communicate to a broader audience. And so I had been taking people into wilderness areas and talking to smaller groups of people about the ecosystems in the Southeast and in particular, the Georgia coast. And I thought, you know, if I went on television, I could reach a much broader audience. So I um, thought about it and I had one connection that I knew um, at the at Georgia Public Television, so I called upon her and I said, "Can you at least get me the name of the person I need to contact?" And she said, "Yes." So I called that person. His name was Bill Marshall, I believe. It was a long time ago, and um, I said, uh, "This is what I want to do." I told him I wanted to do a five part series 
on the habitats of coastal Georgia. And he goes, okay, what you got? (laughs) And so I briefly explained what I wanted. And he goes, okay, come on up. Come on up to Atlanta and let's chat. So I did. And when I walked into his office, um, we ended up talking for about two hours. And at the end of those two hours, he said, okay, I'm going to give you a chance. And I'm going to send a cameraman down to you on the coast. And all I want you to do is to talk on camera uh, through any habitat of your choice. Just talk for however many minutes you want. And he said, and we'll, we'll cut the pilot and we'll see where you go with this. So, uh, but he said, I'll never forget this. He said, um, you, uh, you sound like you know what you're talking about. Uh, you're not a, a white-haired old man. You're a relatively, you're okay looking, you know, young lady. Oh. Yeah. And, uh, and you're already talking money, uh, as in I had already figured out how I would raise the money to to do this show uh now what i understood was that all i had to do was raise one third of what was needed to make this production and that georgia public television would supply the other two-thirds so that was that and back then this was you know television was relatively cheap so with an emmy to demonstrate the value of your work how is it that you didn't focus all your future endeavors on making documentaries so documentaries, uh, making documentaries is expensive, and you have to have good funding behind you. Uh, so I um, worked on another, I actually had two more uh, nature series in mind, and I was able to get one more nature series done before the bottom fell out of state funding. So tell me about the documentary Shifting Baselines. What led you to interview eight Georgian multi-generational commercial fishing families? Yeah, so I was working with, um, uh, at that time, I was still employed by NOAA Grace Reef National Marine Sanctuary. I was their education coordinator. And, um, but, you know, I had already done, had many documentaries under my belt at that point. And so uh, I was, became aware of, this program called uh, Voices of the Bay or something. <laughs> I can't remember what now. But anyway, it was an oral history project that was put on by NOAA Fisheries. And so I got a grant. I was awarded a grant so that um, I could record these voices. And you can imagine, you know, fishermen have kind of a lingo of their own. But you can imagine a deep southern coastal Georgia accent is really quite interesting. Uh, some of them were so thick that I actually had to make subtitles so that people could understand what they were saying. Um, so the deal was is that we didn't have any anybody from Georgia represented in this in this archive. So I found eight uh, multi generational fishing families that were willing to talk to me on camera, and it was such a, a rich experience that by the time we were through, my cameraman, who I had met, uh, I recruited him from a a local television station, um, and his name is Mehmet Shegley, and he's uh, from Istanbul, Turkey, but he went to school here in in, uh, coastal Georgia, Georgia Southern, and um, by the time we were through with all the interviews, he said, you know, we have a documentary here, 
And I said, I think you're right. And, he, and I said, how much money do I need to raise? <laughs> and uh, so he told me. And so I wrote several grants and I got them. And uh, we made the documentary and it's um, uh, and it was uh, broadcast on Georgia Public Television in November of 2019. And um, and then it's now it's just free to anybody who wants to download it. That was the final grant I wrote was with Georgia Sea Grant. And that was their stipulation that it is free to anybody who wants to use it for educational purposes. What I wanted to do with this documentary was to find out what the shift in what a good day's catch was. So, and it was fascinating to me because when you interview grandpa, you know, grandpa said, well, a good day's catch to me was, you know, four hours of shrimping. I could catch, I could catch a thousand pounds on two nets. By the time sun came along, it was more like, well, we could catch a thousand pounds in about a week off of three nets. And by the time grandson came around and inherited the business, it was five nets, well, four nets, sometimes five nets, but it might take several weeks to catch a thousand pounds. So you see the shift. But the interesting thing was, is that they didn't talk about that within the family. So it was quite a surprise to them to realize that grandpa took very little effort to get a thousand pounds. It took more effort for Papa, but it took a lot more effort for son, grandson to, to uh, pull in the same amount of shrimp. And that was the point of the shift in baseline, the shift within the family that they didn't even realize that it took a lot more effort to get to that thousand pound mark. So much of your work is tied to Georgia and more recently to the Gray's Reef National Marine Sanctuary. What is a marine sanctuary? So um, there was a petition to then President Jimmy Carter, who was from Georgia, and on his way out of office, um, one of our prominent socialites in Atlanta, Jane Hurt Yarn, God bless you, Jane, um, decided that she would put, uh, personally make it her uh, her mission to get Gray's Reef designated as a national marine sanctuary. So she literally, by phone, walked the papers from desk to desk to desk until it landed on Jimmy's desk. He signed it. Boom. We have uh, January 16, 1981. Uh, Sapelo Live Bottom officially becomes NOAA Gray's Reef National Marine Sanctuary. And, and what's special about the Gray's Reef? So Gray's Reef was named for the the researcher from the University of Georgia who sampled, collected the samples from the Sapelo Live Bottom and created this amazing collection of the invertebrates that were collected off of that Live Bottom. And so Grace Reef is one of many uh, similar habitats off the coast of Georgia and not just Georgia, but Northern Florida, South Carolina, and even North Carolina. These are uh, what we call, the locals would call it a hard ground live bottom. Uh, scientists will call it a calcitic sandstone reef. <laughs> um, so uh, the, the reef is not a coral reef, building reef. There are maybe four species of hard corals, but it's on a calcitic sandstone um, uh, ledges. And then that's carpeted by, uh, by encrusting sponges and um, corals. 
and so soft corals. And then from that, you get this whole uh, layer, mini layering of, of uh, fish invertebrates uh, that go up the water column. So it's, it's quite astounding. So it's a very rich area. Very rich. I really have to ask you about your adventure as an aquanaut. It is as simple, or is it as simple as taking an elevator into a building that's sighted underwater? Or is it like getting into a submarine that's parked on the bottom? It's like working in and out of a submarine that's parked on the bottom of the ocean. And uh, so uh, this, our submarine was stationary. It, we, it didn't go anywhere. We, were, we went. Uh, so um, by, by staying underwater out of this habitat, I was able to dive, and my, my uh, colleagues, my partners, we were all able to dive up to eight hours a day. Uh, and we were diving to 130 feet for eight hours a day. What was it like living underwater for that long? I stayed cold most of the time. <laughs> uh, well, uh, and fortunately, a colleague of mine who had done this before knew that I freeze and uh, that I'm very, a very southern, thin-blooded. And uh, he said, you're going to be so cold. He said, just take fleece. I know it's going to be September and the water's going to be warm, but just take fleece because you're not going to ever come out of that fleece. And he was right. I never did come out of that fleece. So what was fascinating to me was uh, I saw so many things that I would never have been able to see just diving. Well, one night there was such a storm at the surface and we didn't, you really don't know what's going on at the surface because you can't see it. But I happened to be looking out the porthole over my feet just as a lightning bolt hit the water. And I was like, what the heck is that? I thought it was an electrical short uh, in the system somewhere. But then I realized what I was watching was a lightning bolt coming through the water column. So it, it went just slow enough that I was able to look out the porthole and down to the sand. And as it hit the sand, it spread out like tentacles. But the blue was almost as blue as your, your turtleneck. It was just that electric blue. It was the most beautiful thing I'd ever seen. Now, had I been in the water, I might not have survived the tail of the tail. But I right. was there to observe it. That was the most fascinating thing I'd ever seen. I think then, it's so fascinating that we see astronauts and their view from space but we don't see anybody who spent time underwater and what it's like to be underwater. So this is, you know, fascinating. You need to make a documentary about this. <laughs> well, it'll probably come out as a book at some point. But um, the other fascinating thing to me was the change in um, uh, like one day it would be crystal clear. And then another day it would be just like pea soup. And when it was pea soup, all of the fish would just, I mean, big fish, like big Atlantic spade fish would use you, would use me, use us divers as kind of like barriers. And then the barracuda would come in and you're going, no, don't use me as your, <laughs> you know, <laughs> as your hidey hole, hide, hide behind, you know. So most recently you've taken on some writing projects. So tell me about your book with the intriguing title, The Adventures of Leslie Binnacle. The barnacle. Yeah, so um, I uh, am a sailor too, or have been in the past. So I, um, I wanted to 
convey the adventure of sailing, but I didn't want to do it as a first person narrative. I wanted to do it um, from a different perspective. So I decided that what better way to do it than through the voice of an acorn barnacle. And the prescient um, aspect of it was acorn barnacles are hermaphroditic. So, you know, now we've got a lot of uh, gender uh, fluidity. Comp- yeah. 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 Flu- there you go. That's a great word, fluidity. And so um, here we have in nature, this has been all along. We have, we have hermaphroditic uh, animals so I used all the names that I use in the uh, to to give the barnacles names are um, you know non gender specific. They're like Taylor, Leslie. I, I know men and women name both both of those names. So um, this little barnacle uh, goes through all the stages of life. Nopolius, um, uh, oh shoot, <laughs> anyway the state the 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 different larval stages of the uh of of her species and then she finally attaches and it's like where am i going to attach am i going to attach to a big ship am i going to attach to a whale am i going to attach to a turtle well she decides to attach to a small sailboat and that sailboat goes from savannah georgia all the way down through the caribbean uh through the panama canal and then up baja finally to san francisco but all along the way she has adventures because she's talking to other barnacles on the on the back of a humpback whale, on the back of a loggerhead sea turtle, on the on the you know attached to another ship. So she's getting all this information uh, about everybody's adventures, and all I love through, it. All through the book is you know ocean stewardship. <laughs> Very nice. I'm going to have to find that one too. So I've been asking guests at the end of every podcast to offer some ideas to suggest ways that people can make a positive difference when it comes to the ocean. What are your thoughts? My thoughts are reduce the use of plastic. You know, one of the biggest things that we see out in the ocean is plastic. And uh, if you can stop using, uh, and, and most of what I've collected has not really been the big pieces. It what was frightening to me was I was asked to um, sample for the globules of oil that were coming up from the deep water horizon in 2010. I never found any oil globules and the water column looked crystal clear. But when I pulled up those those really fine mesh nets was they were packed very solid. I'm I'm using my fingers to uh, illustrate a about um, a three inch by three inch um, cylinder that was packed with the teeniest tiniest little particles of plastic and those would be the sheet plastic and the sheet plastic is what one used plastic bags come from so plastic never goes away it just keeps getting smaller and smaller and smaller so you don't see it that's a real issue so you know one of the things use don't uh, reuse reusable totes to go get your groceries eliminate plastic from your life (laughs) if you can uh or at least reduce it uh you know and and some people say well if you refuse a straw does that really make a difference well yeah it does a it um you know reminds you that you don't want to use plastic and b when you say that i don't want a straw you're actually teaching whether you believe it or not because your people hear you say that 
you say that to the wait person, wait staff. So you're teaching as you as you do that. Thank you, Kathy. Well, I'm sincerely grateful to you for taking the time to talk with me for the Women Mind the Water podcast. It is inspiring to talk with someone who has worked so tirelessly on behalf of the ocean. I'd like to remind listeners that I have been speaking with Kathy Sackis for the Women Mind the Water podcast series. This series can be viewed on womenmindthewater.com. An audio-only version of this podcast is available on the Women Mind the Water website, on iTunes, and also on Spotify, Stitcher, and Google Podcasts. Women Mind the Water is grateful to Jane Rice for the song Women of Water. All rights for the Women Mind the Water name and logo belong to Pam Ferris Olson. This is Pam Ferris Olson.